My guest today is Steve Weiss, founder and past CEO of Mute6, a full funnel performance marketing agency, which he sold to Dentsu in 2019. This is a story about bootstrapping over five years and building one of the largest digital marketing agency exits there, there has been. Uh, this is about more than just one business. Steve is a lifelong entrepreneur. Uh, his, we're going to dive deep into how in the heck he built not just Mute 6, but the different businesses. Uh, Mute 6 went to over, was it 500 employees? You managed yeah. over a billion dollars of ad spend on Facebook. So this is going to be a really cool journey. And the people who should listen to this are entrepreneurs who are in the thick of it. People who want to become entrepreneurs, people who are transitioning life, for example, transitioning vets that we help out with 51 vets and really just anybody who's interested in entrepreneurship and building businesses. So Steve, hopefully I didn't butcher the story too much. No. Let, well, let's start off with how did you make your first dollar online? Oh, online. That's that's interesting. I think it was 2007. I was a email marketing spammer. <laughs> 2006. So I found, you know, I was on the IRC and like most kids who are in a computer. Actually, sorry, it was before that. It was 2003. Like most kids who you know, very early on AOL dial ups and like most kids, like I wanted to make money online. I did stuff in my childhood, which I wasn't very uh, proud of. I sold drugs as a kid. Like, you know, some people listen to this who have done stuff they're not proud of. I, I sold some pills and, you know, and, and I actually got robbed at gunpoint and I never sold drugs ever again after getting pistol whipped and some teeth knocked out. And that, that's a story in itself, but I wanted to find ways to make money online. I came from a, a single mother. We didn't have much growing up. I, I lived, I never lived in a house as a kid. We always lived in apartments or condos. We moved from place to place. And so I was I had this deep desire to figure out how to make money. That was like my life in a way, in a way, my life mission was to pull myself out of this, this demographic and, and really be able to not worry about like how to afford dinners and how to afford lunches. And so the way it happened was I was on the IRC and, you know, at first I'm looking for free content, you know, free videos, free you know adult content at the time, you know, this is when you had to actually pay pay for uh, adult content. And someone posted a, a video like, that said that you could make money, you know, sending, you know, you know, connecting to mail servers and sending unsolicited email. And this is an early affiliate marketing. And I kind of just jumped all over it. And then, so when, what, how old were you again? Were you, when you I started? was in 2003, I was, I think 17. Yeah. And well, that, <laughs> Let's rewind past that. I mean, what was the story growing up? Yeah, I mean, you know, from New Jersey, my mom raised me. She she worked three jobs. You know, she was always really intent on me staying out of trouble. And you know, I love sports. Sports was like what really inspired me, like the competitive nature, the camaraderie, being being around other people that really, you know, that wanted as much as you. And I played basketball as a kid. So literally my whole summers, my all my winters, it was just basketball, basketball, basketball. I had nothing else in my life except basketball. And sadly, I didn't make the NBA. You know, not, not a lot of six foot three white kids make the NBA, Jordan, sadly, you know. Go for it, bro. <laughs> and, and neither do five foot seven white kids. <laughs> <laughs> so like I needed another, you know, I needed another path to success. And I was very ambitious. Um, I never, I wasn't a guy that could just work a job. I never envisioned myself 
Glorious and Southern, I never envisioned myself ever having a job. I was always like, from, from the day I was a kid, I, I shoveled snow and I hired kids underneath me to shovel other driveways. So I had like a whole crew of sh- snow shovelers. I, I sold parking spaces. I sold a- anything I get my hands on. I sold sneakers. I sold, <laughs> you know, I sold pills. I, I did everything you could ever imagine to make money. I did before the internet age. And then the internet age came about and I'm like, wow, I can make money doing nothing. Holy shit. I can make money behind the computer. The computer could work for me. And that really was the biggest like unlock of my life when I'm 17 years old. And I, I rigged the time, you know, you, uh, I was getting paid money to send out emails and generate leads of people that wanted mortgage leads. So that wanted mortgages. This is 2003, very early on. And the, what I understood was the more emails that I could send out, the more mortgage leads I could produce of people that wanted mortgages. And I sold these mortgage leads to mortgage companies. I know this for, you know, for a 17 year old kid, I didn't know what a mortgage was, but I knew that there was a supply, a way to get your hands in the supply and a, and a high demand. And I started rigging up more and more computers to send out spam to get mortgage leads. And <laughs> that's how I started. So how'd you go from what, what was next? I mean, how do you um, go back to mute six? Let's fill in some so of these. You know, like like most people, like I, I rode I was a wave call like a wave rider, you know. Like my first business was a company called like the lead firm where we we produced leads for the mortgage industry. We had a call center and that was our bread and butter. We made a lot of money. And then we found out that not everyone that we sold leads to would pay their bills. So 2007 comes around and we're selling to a big mortgage company, one of the biggest in the United States called AmeriQuest. And they didn't pay us, you know, almost two and a half million dollars they owed us for leads. And I didn't realize that, like, if you give people terms, payment terms and pay later, that there's a risk (laughs) they might not pay you. (laughs) Go figure. Right. That was like a business lesson of like, holy shit, like why are you paying us? Like, what does that mean? You're going bankrupt. I don't know what that means. Like, does that, <laughs> what does that have to do with me? I, I want to go out and party. Can you send me my money? <laughs> and so like, that's, that business like flourished until 2000, end of 2007, when if you guys remember, if people listen to this podcast, that a lot of lenders called like mortgage lenders in the U S they went out of business. So a lot of our clients, couldn't pay their bills and went out of business. And that was like one of the most difficult challenges of my life. I thought I was a successful person. I made, I made, you know, I think it was millions of dollars selling leads at a very young age. I thought I was successful and to have everything ripped away and be starting at fresh at nothing was extremely difficult. So what were you doing in 07, 08 when there go the clients there's no more money, no more millions coming in. Uh, what did you do? So I took the money. So we were, you know, at the time we were buying leads from what you call like affiliates, people that like would sell us leads and then we would resell them to um, mortgage companies. And, and then we were also buying leads from Google. So we we're buying advertisements on Google and then what we call arbitraging them back to a, a cost per lead. And and, in, you know, Google, we were on paid terms with. So we paid Google. I think it was net 20 or net 30. We paid our affiliate vendors also net 20 or net 30. And the realization happened that we weren't that we weren't getting paid from our like mortgage companies. So we couldn't afford 
to pay, you know, the people that we are buying leads from, you know, supply and demand. You bought from one place, sell to another place. And so I took most of the capital that we had our business and I made a, uh, you know, made a decision that I just wanted to pay the right thing to do, which was a very tough decision. was just to pay everyone off and just shut, shut shop. So I could have easily kept that money and just said, you know, kind of, in those words, fuck you to everyone else. And, but it really wasn't in my nature to really, you know, I know I'm not perfect in any ways, but it's not my nature to like to do that to people and to people that relied on us to pay their bills. So I paid everyone off and I closed up shop and that was that. And it led to a lot of like me, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of like not having a purpose. And, you know, I left college. I didn't graduate the way or do what I want to do in college. And I started like just traveling i went to you know moved to thailand for a little while i did a stint out there and uh you know i was trying to find myself I, and i think i think that was one of the t- most interesting times of my life when you have a lot of success and then you go to zero overnight how did uh how'd you get through that how'd you just kind of recover mentally from oh. that extreme low to the extreme high back down again did that just kind of make you think back to growing up in, you know, single parent household? And there's kind of like that mentality of like, where am I going to eat? Yeah. Well, I had really bad anxiety for, for those people that also had anxiety. Like I, I went through times where I was scared to go outside. I had like, I felt like my heart was like going to like burst out of my chest. I had really bad anxiety and really bad, just depression. And I knew like I had to overcome my own self before I could move on to something else. So I had to overcome anxiety. And and I know that's a really scary thing is how do you overcome something that's not very clear? How do you overcome an experience and in, in your how do you overcome yourself? And I didn't I didn't want to take pills. I didn't want to take anything. And maybe that was the right or wrong mentality to it. But I came up with this strategy that I was going to go and anything that I was scared of, the, the thing that I was most scared of, I was going to do. That was it. That was literally if I was scared to travel somewhere, if I was scared to start something, if I was scared to start over again, whatever it was, I, I literally would focus on just doing that. And I, I came up with the the way to beat anxiety is to take the thing you're most scared of and just go do it and, and kind of face your fears like head on. Did you have anxiety growing up? None. No, I just had it after that business. I, th- that was the reason why I dropped out of college was that. I, I just had like really bad anxiety from like, from that business from like, and I, in my head, like, I vowed I never wanted to be an entrepreneur ever again. Like I hated entrepreneurship. I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> be- because of the extreme volatility. Extreme volatility from making like millions of dollars to making zero and losing it all. Like I, I just didn't want any, like if someone was like, hey, you can be an entrepreneur, here's an easy path, I would say I have no interest in it. And for the next like five years, I did everything that I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with business. I didn't want anything to do with that. I stay as far away from it as possible. <laughs> yeah. So then you were in Thailand for what, a year or two? No, not not like six months, not, not super long, but I live really like frugally there. Um, I got to like experience a lot of culture and then I came back to the U S and I got into comedy and acting. And I was really like, <laughs> inter- I, I had like a new interest. I was like, you know, the, the act of going on stage 
and try to make people laugh. That was like an adrenaline rush for me. I was like, wow, like I could connect with people in a way that was totally different than business. How many times did you do stand up? Oh, probably like 200 or 300 times. Like I was doing it like very often in New York and New Jersey. And I thought, you know, one time I thought I was funny. And, you know, you know, people just lied to me. You know, they, they told me I was funny. They're just lying. it is a surreal experience to do that and that point of like just jumping into it it kind of reminds me i was listening to a tim ferris episode and was interviewing somebody basically said something like do something every day that scares you yeah and i was like all right stand-up comedy scares me i'll do it tonight and it had the whole day to like all right i gotta figure this out like texting friends and thinking about (laughs) the story but to that, you know, idea of just like jumping into it and if you're scared of it and it's just almost like developing this muscle of how to overcome anxiety and what fear is and how most of it is just perceived and not actual. You know, someone told me that the, the mind, the way the mind thinks about reality is way different than reality actually is. And if you could decipher you know, that this isn't real. Whenever you have a memory or a moment in your life where you're, you know, and you can just say to your mind, this isn't real. This is not real. This is not reality. You know, it really helps you like deal with a lot of those problems. And I would have a lot of anxiety around like creating, creating realities that didn't exist, you know, creating, you know, having low confidence in myself. Like, you know, I didn't graduate college. I didn't come from, you know, I, you know, give you an example, like after while I was doing comedy, I applied to every single company you could ever imagine. I spent hours and hours and hours applying for a job and no one like would get back to me like because I didn't have the pedigree that other people had. <laughs> Even though everyone. you could put on a resume, yeah, I made millions in the business. <laughs> you, you, not, not qualified. You know, the interesting thing is, as an entrepreneur, when people are hiring others, they don't value the entrepreneur skill set on paper and, and they don't know what it's like. So like, I feel like I was like a victim of my own success. Like, well, when I overcame my anxiety, I just, I just wanted a job. I was like, I'll work for anyone. Just, just literally just hire me. Like I'll do whatever it takes. And like, I felt like <laughs> no one wanted, at least no tech companies wanted to hire someone that didn't have, or didn't have a pedigree that other people had. Well, I, I think that's interesting because when you speak of pedigree, one of the things that really brings up is this idea of predictability and a template for a company, an industry, a function. And they're trying to, whether consciously or not, de-risk who's coming in. And entrepreneurs are the exact opposite. You you know, if we knew what was going to happen, we wouldn't do entrepreneurship. Now, you mitigate risk as you evolve as an entrepreneur, as a business, as a team. But fundamentally, you don't go into like, you know what? This is a safe bet. I think I'll well, I think I'll start a business. The entrepreneurs, the people that are entrepreneurs are cut a lot differently, in my opinion, than most people that go out and get jobs. Everyone aspires to be an entrepreneur because they look at the end product. They look at me. I sold a business. You know, I live a an incredible life. I get to, you know, spend time with my daughter. I get to travel. I get to have properties. They look at me like I'm like, wow, Steve, I want to be you. And what they don't understand is the pain, the everyday pain that went into becoming me. And like, and I think that entrepreneurs are, are they have an extreme 
like memory of what it's like to be broke. They're, they're so connected to this memory of what it's like being broke and what it's like having nothing and what it's like not having people in your life that care about you to the point that you're willing to, to, to march or run as fast as possible the other way. And, you know, as I used to call it, dig great. I would dig graves to be successful. I, I wanted it more than anyone else in my industry. Like we had all these other agencies that were bigger than us. But you know what? They didn't know what it's like to not have food on the table. They didn't know what it's like to go to bed in your car in 24 hour fitness. And I'm six, three and I couldn't fit in my car. So I was like, <laughs> so they Wait, didn't know. What? What's the story? <laughs> so I, uh, I'll get to it. But uh, when I moved to LA, I slept in my car for a little while and I'd park my car in 24 hour fitness and I put the seat down and I'd try to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the worst experience ever. It was the, the worst. It was terrible. It was like the, and I hated going to bed at night because I couldn't get a good night's sleep ever in my car. <laughs> and is this as you were just starting the business in like 20 20- Yeah. Well, actually, before I started, I moved to LA to be a comedian. And my mom sent my car to LA. So I had a place to stay. I was originally staying at my friend Sean's house. Uh, he, you know, he sold drugs and he, you know, he had other people there that were also selling drugs. So his house got raided, you know, by, you know, the, the cops. So like I had to get my stuff out of his house and then slept in my car because <laughs> I didn't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> where, were you, where was your head at in that time? I mean, you know, there, there's a, there's, it's depressed. I mean, I was, I was like in tears every I mean, my. The, the guy I considered my stepdad, he was one of the 11 people who died in Hurricane Sandy. And I moved to L.A. right after that. So I missed my mom. I missed my you know my family in New Jersey. And uh, but I knew, like, to overcome my fear, I needed to be in L.A. I need to be on my own. I need to make it on my own. And so on one hand, like, I was really sad like, in my heart that I just lost my stepdad. But on their hand, I was like, I, would, I had a pen and paper that I just continue to write down. Um, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be successful. Um, and I would just write that down in, on a notepad whenever I got depressed. I would just write down, I got this. I'm going to be successful. And, I, and I'd write it down a thousand times to a point where I just fall asleep. <laughs> well, I, I think there, there's so much to unpack in that in that story. And I think a good exercise for people to do is to write down what they fear. And, and it might not be like, you know, you're on top of a building, you're afraid you're going to, of jumping off and, you know, base jumping, like that type of fear. It could be a subtle, unnoticeable fear that maybe you've been in a situation for five, 10 plus years, but you're not really recognizing that maybe you're afraid to start a company. Maybe you're afraid of the downside. Maybe you're afraid of the ego of what people think about you leaving a career path. Even even more compelling is, you know, I think the understanding your fear is extremely important. But even more is like, we all want an outcome. We all want something. What is the outcome we want? And I think it's really important to like, all right, you're going to take that risk. You're going to start this company. You're going to, you know, whatever the risk is, what is the outcome that you want? And I think that you should write down the most desired outcome that you want. At the time, I wanted to be successful because I wanted to have a place to live. I wanted a bed. I wanted 
eventually I wanted to start a family. I wanted a wife. I wanted a kid. I wanted kids. I wanted all that stuff that like, that I grew up that I didn't have. Like I didn't have like a very, I didn't have the most, you know, perfect family upbringing. So I wanted like everything I didn't have. So I'd write that down. I'd write down continuously all in my notebook. And to this day, I journal almost every day. I write down my thoughts. Well, it's interesting because you're talking about this entrepreneurship and people don't see what happens. I think it was about a week or two ago. It was probably 11 or 12 at night. Jane was asleep and I was looking through my journal, you know, on my Evernote journal from 2016 when I started our first business. And I was just like, holy crap. We, how in the heck did we make it? Like we have $50 in the bank account. <laughs> and I, I wrote down like Gene cried version one, Gene cried version five, Gene cried version 12. And I had screenshots of our bank. Oh. Account. I remember there was one time I was like $500 in the bank account day before. And then closing balance was 125 <laughs> in one day. And then uh-huh. there's just all these things of like, and of all the, honestly, the difficult times. And then, Reviewing that made me think that I have to start writing down wins on a daily basis. And there's this book uh, called the, the, the Gap and the Gain by Dan Sullivan. And one of the things he talks about in there is writing down the wins that you want to have the day yeah. ahead of you. And at the end of the night, the wins that you had and starting your meeting with wins. So now at the dinner table with our kids, we're talking about how is school? You know, yeah. what are the wins that are happening? Because no. I realized like as entrepreneurs, like it's so easy to focus on the bad stuff that happens. Along <laughs> yeah, so like, easy. Oh, I haven't taken salary for two months, but I hired people or how in the heck we're going to solve this tax issue or all these things like the ups and the downs. It's, you know, I, I think as, as I reflect back, you know, now that I've you know sold a company, I've made more money than I'll ever need. You know, the, the journey is more important impactful than the destination the journey of going through that of like testing yourself testing your own resolve and the way you react and it is that's the most impactful journey as a professional that you will go through and i think like it's really you know i never when i started mute six i never in a million years thought i'd ever sell a business never i didn't start to sell i didn't i didn't ever believe it everyone would tell me that you can't sell digital marketing agencies they're not actually real businesses and I was, it was just like a hamster wheel. It was like, oh, you're just going to get clients, hamster wheel, hamster wheel. So I didn't have, I didn't start it for that. I just wanted to survive, man. Like very simply, I just wanted to be able to make enough money to put food on the table and have a place to go home to. Well, let's go to that next step in the journey. How did you start Mute 6? What's the, what's the background? So I was, uh, I really wanted to do comedy. I know it's, it's almost like that, uh, Adam Sandler movie, uh, the um, Happy Gilmore, where he would he just wanted to become a hockey player, but he was like he was playing golf. Do you remember that? Yes. And the more he was he was like playing golf. He's like, no, I'm not a golfer. I'm a hockey player. So I would just be like, no, I'm not a business person. I'm a comedian. Three hundred sixty four <laughs> more days till hockey practice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was like the analogy I used to people. I was like, no, I'm not a business person. I'm a, I'm a comedian. Like you know. I'm, comedy and improv and I would just like kind of lie to myself to tell people no no but I know I'm good at business but I'm also like a comedian so you know that this is who I am so you know I um, I got to LA and like you know I didn't want to be an entrepreneur I hated entrepreneurship I was like still scarred from the past but 
you know, I've always been really good at making money. I know it sounds crazy to say, but like, you know, I'm good at making money. You know, I, I have a vision of something. I know something will work. And then I put everything I have in the middle of a table and say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the best at that. So I get out here and I really want to get on stage. I really want to get, you know, I want to get on stage. I want to get perform in front of people and, and make people laugh. And, but I couldn't get on stage because I couldn't bring people to the comedy show. It was a big roadblock of like, how do I bring people to a comedy show when I don't know anyone in LA? So <laughs> it was a big roadblock in my mind. So I had this genius idea while sitting in the back of Starbucks in West Hollywood, you know, I'm like all alone. It's, you know, seven, eight o'clock. And I'd always work from Starbucks. And I was like, you know, what if I just ran ads, Facebook ads, which weren't very popular at the time? What if I ran Facebook ads to get people to come to my comedy show? Very novel idea. Now it's like very, you know, socially acceptable. But back then it was like, you know, I could actually, you know, drive audience to the shows. And so I was like, all right, you know, I have a little bit of money, you know, 20 bucks. This is then the time of like right hand rail ads and Facebook flyers and, and sponsored posts. It's very, really inexpensive. So I started running Facebook ads and, and I was like, oh, this is going to work. This is going to work. Doesn't work at all. <laughs> How much money did you drop on it? Couple uh, the first time I dropped like 50 bucks and. You know, I had I took a I took an image of myself with it with a mic and I and I ran that as a as an image ad and no one knew who I was. I, I just was like took one of my jokes that I did and I put that into the ad and people were like, no, but who who is this guy? Like, why am I going to see Steve Weiss perform comedy? Why am I opening, you know, taking time out of my day to perform comedy? So I had a different idea. I was like, you know what? Back to the drawing board. So. You know, at the time, there was no such thing as verified accounts on Facebook. So I, I created, I looked and see who the top comedians were. You know, I think it was like Dane Cook, you know, Chris Rock, and, you know, those types of people. And I, so I was like, what if I just create a fan page saying this is Chris Rock official fan club? And then, so I created a, a fan page around like these top comedians. I said, and I, then I created an ad that said, I'm performing, you know, Chris is performing at this comedy club where I was doing an open mic and I would say, use my name at the door. <laughs> and that worked really well. That was like, <laughs> that was <laughs> the random people would show up at the comedy club using my name. And I, I always got on stage when I ran ads the day before that. And th that was how I got into Facebook ads was just wanting to, being intellectually curious about how do I drive people to my comedy shows? Well, and I think that's a good lesson of how many businesses start. It's just, you experience the problem and then you explore and discover and experiment. And eventually a solution starts to take shape. Yeah, it was, you know, I don't think you should give up. You know, if there's always an answer to a problem. You know, there's it's always like there's always an answer to a prayer somewhere, you know, just have to be crazy enough to think about it. And I just happen to be crazy enough to think of a solution to a problem like that. And and then then I came up with other solutions. I was like, wow, like if I bet there's other businesses that have the same issue that they want to drive new customers and, you know, they want to figure out how do they integrate creative, a.k.a. videos and text and ads to drive performance 
which is which is equal to sales on social media. So I wanted to, you know, I had this vision that I could help businesses do this. And at one of my comedy shows, I met the first brand that we ended up working with. And that that's how it all started. That was how Mute 6 started. It was just me meeting someone at a comedy show and then running their ads. And and then we just started making conversation go. I mean, what? did they come up to you and be like, I saw your ad. How do I how no, do I no, it was a casual like conversation of sorts. It was just like they were a fa- they were like a new fashion brand and they were like, How do we, you know, they I was like just telling them how I like was, you know, using Facebook to drive people to the show. I I kind of told them I was honest. I was like, Yeah, like Chris Rock isn't performing here or something. And that was me who like, ran a fake ad. And I was like, I just owned it. I was like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then, well it got me here yeah and so like, they let me run, and so they, they told me that hey listen you could run if you want to test out facebook we're willing to invest some money with you and see if we can make it work as a sales channel and i ended up having some success with them i scaled them from spending zero on facebook to spending almost 50 grand a month and be, you know at a four times you know profit so they're making 200 and Twenty thousand dollars a month and spending, or, or and spending fifty grand a month, and then I, you know, that's how we all started, and it was all this multiple of flipping money. It was like, hey, if I spend X, how much revenue will that drive? And we were really good at figuring out and quantifying, you know, how much money you could spend, how much revenue you can make, and you know, attributing that back to the Facebook ad. And we did it at scale. We were, you know, we built a whole sales team and we built processes. <laughs> we, we, Is this like 2014, 2015? Yeah, 2014. Like, I'll, I'll go on a limb and say that we sold Facebook ads better than Facebook sold Facebook ads. <laughs> like, we sold more companies on Facebook ads than any, than I think anyone in our space, like, or one of them. Like, we were really good at selling Facebook ads and creative. Like we've probably worked with thousands and thousands of companies. So what was like the next major step in the business after it's like the first customer and you realize there's something there, what was kind of like the next major step in 2015, 2016? So I had like this vision that like, if I'm running the Facebook ads and my partner, Dan is running Facebook ads, we're doing operations we're in the business that we can't grow the business. So the thought was, hey, can we take our knowledge that we have of how to make success on this platform for businesses and duplicate it thousands of times? Because we know if we want to work with thousands of brands, we need hundreds, of, if not thousands of employees. So we started building content about how we do what we do. We, and we built this thing called the learning docs where we have like, you know, all the learnings that we have saved in one centralized place like a knowledge base and so like we onboard a new employee they'll, they'll go through the learning docs so they'll have everything at their fingertips you know to understand how to actually do the job and so how how quickly did it grow from 2014 you know doing what 50k a month i think uh 2013 was end of 2013 we're doing like 30 or 40k a month and then yeah, it grew every single year. I don't think we had, we grew, you know, 50 to 100% almost every year, I think. And don't quote me on exact numbers, but it was a rocket yeah. ship of a, you know, company. We're adding, 
you know, 50 employees to 100 employees to 200 employees to 300 employees to 500 employees. Like it was just, you know, and then we had to get bigger offices. And then COVID hit and, and that then we started doing remote work. And it was just a, it was a, the most craziest five years ever to go from zero to like, you know, many, many millions of dollars in revenue, many, many millions, of, you know, so many great client stories. And we just did this at such a big scale. We had a whole system like system of system of hiring we had a you know a doc where people can know like what they need to do to move up in our organization we had like you know you know we had a thing called the levels doc where you you start on this level then you go to this level and like so it was just it was just a crazy like process of building process to like doing tasks like we we wanted to be very transparent with our employees like we really cared about our team I felt like there wasn't like any transparency in companies. So we wanted to say, hey, this is how you get promoted in your job. This is what the next level of promotion makes. This is what, and it was a very different, different process than a lot of companies do. How did you manage the, the scaling of the team that fast? Like, what did you do? What did others on the team do from a management perspective? Like, how did you actually handle that rapid growth and what are some was, of those that kind of broke along the way but you fixed it yeah so like you know a couple of learnings we had was just because you're great at your job you could be the best facebook marketer in the world doesn't mean you're a great manager <laughs> that was a huge like learning so we had like a called a pod structure where each you know where we like we had team leaders who let who led pods of people and they would have like, you know, like junior people underneath them and they would be paid to both do the role of a campaign manager, but also like, you know, mentor their people and help them grow into pod leaders. So the only way our, our structure worked is if we could promote people fast, like we need them to be able to take on and own digital marketing clients. And we need to do that. And we they need to grow faster in our organization. So we realized that stagnation of growth was the bane of our existing as an entity. So the way we're able to grow so fast is we're able to incentivize our managers to help grow, to help them mentor and grow other team members very fast. I know it's a very unique methodology, yeah. but like it really worked. And it sounds like also earlier on, you built the systems and yeah. processes to, to scale on. Yep. Yeah. Um, how did you keep the team motivated to think like an owner or to think at the stage that you were at and scaling so fast? I'm, I'm assuming you, there weren't just 500 people that are just nine to five. No, it was, everyone had a different role. And, you know, we, this was one of the keys that as I look back on, like one of the keys to our success is we incentivize the growth in the salary of a team member with the growth of the company. So as the company grew, they started making more money. As the, as, as the client was paying them more money as a fee, the company was generating more revenue and they were making more money to get. So those three things, the client was growing with us, the team member was making more money and the company was growing. So if you can incentivize the team member and align that incentivization with the growth of the company, that's a win-win for everyone. And that's how we thought about it. So would a person on an account, like if they grew the account 
would their base be raised or the so their bonus their, their bonus would be raised so they would get a percentage of the revenue that was paid to the to the 80s so they and would all on the on the ad spend yeah uh, um no no whatever the fee was so some of the clients we worked with didn't have any ad spend um some of them at the time were just flat fees whatever they paid us we got you know a person you know whatever they paid us that team member or their pod got a percentage of that revenue. And, it, and hence, sometimes they were on ad spend, so they were incentivized to figure out how to scale and scale it profitably for the client. Again, the client makes the final decision on what they spend, but as long as they could hit a certain return on investment, the client would be incent- would be open to spending more money on advertising. It's interesting because it it encourages the team to continually be growing the client relationship and always figure out how to go deeper and figure out new services or adjacencies. So we'd open up originally, we started off just doing Facebook ads. Then we built a Google ads department. So then we incentivized the people that were running Facebook ads to upsell or to to take, you know, the, the Google spend to our Google team. Then we had our Google team, you know, upsell email marketing. Then the email marketing team would upsell creative services and the creative services team would upsell influencer marketing. So we had this all these different services with different teams that were all working together to both get the get the clients into our, our, our service offering, but also provide the best service. And all of them were working together to grow the client's uh, revenue. How do you think about, pricing from a structural perspective in the agency space. And, you know, the way that we've evolved it is we used to charge a flat rate for a brand video or, you know, a, a, a less produced video. And then with same thing on it, we try to flat rate for a post. And then what we found is that like a client might come back like, Oh, not version three on the brand video. We're going to go to version 10. When we switched to hourly in the past six months and we're at year five, it completely changed us um, on the predictability of revenue and the consistency. But it's also that game of like, you know, a client wants to be able to budget on a regular basis. So one question is like, how do you think about that? You know, in the agency, my understanding is the agency world has a lot of hourly rates, similar yeah. to law firms, et cetera. But how, do, how, how have you thought about that? balance between I think, I think I think it's impossible for an agency it's very hard for an agency to scale charging hourly I think that the marketing person is not built to be an hourly employee because they're thinking you know what is marketing it's cognitive thinking it's thinking about how this brand looks in front of a consumer it's thinking about the messaging it's thinking about the platform it's thinking about so many other areas that you can't quantify from an hourly perspective so I think that, you know, this healthiest way for an agency to scale is, or any services company to scale is to really think about the strategic, you know, the strategic services that's being provided that like saying, hey, listen, you're working with us because you want the best strategy. You want to know what types of videos you want to know what types of scripts. And so I don't believe in hourly. I don't believe in selling anything by a video. I think that, you know, what people are hiring you for is your strategic, your strategy, your brain and any type of marketing services. So I think that the best way to 
package that is in some form of a contract, a monthly contract, a monthly retainer, you know, similar, you know, similar to like a services company that just does retainers. I, I don't think that hourly, I don't think you guys are lawyers. I don't think marketing people are lawyers. We're, we're well, very you, different lawyers. So how do you bridge the gap between what you did and your clients did of, Hey, strategy plus, you know, I'm going to, here's a watch, here's a Garmin watch and I'm going to run the ads on this on social. And I know you spent hundred thousand and you got 400,000 back. That's where I think what I understand of what you guys are generally at versus us, you know, our client goals. So our clients are typically like a private equity firm, an investment bank. Now our clients goals, like a private equity firm are, I want to raise up $500 million fund. I want to source another company and write a $25, $50 million check. I want to hire a VP or an associate to come to our firm and not another firm. How the heck do we bridge that value gap? Because a lot of what we're doing is is brand marketing. It's not, I saw this LinkedIn post, I clicked on it, and then a week later, I wrote a $50 million check. So there's like, we know... And this is kind of like this frustration on our side. We know that we are more than marketers as part of our tagline, but how do we bridge the gap between twenty-five dollars to $50,000 video? And wait a second, we move the needle for you to raise that $500 million fund. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think that you're underselling yourself. I think that you're not selling a video to a private equity firm or capital, call them capital deployer. You're, you're selling a strategy that's going to humanize their firm and attract talent, attract investment, attract attention. You're saying that, listen, the content we create for you using our strategy and our playbook is going to attract attention. And that's a strategy. That's not that's not just doing a video. I do video. I charge 20 grand. No, that's a strategy. That's actually you cognitively thinking how to position this firm, writing scripts, so much more goes into that, which platforms to use. So I think that you base every single thing you do around the goals of the client. And you say, listen, similar to what you're doing already, what is your goal? Like, why, like, what is the why? Why do you want your private equity firm to be out there? Why do you want, like, why do you want to, you know, hire someone like me? Like, why? Okay, well, I really want to rate, you know, to make the path to raising my next fund easier. I, I I want people when I send my deck to people or I want them to know, oh, I've heard, I've heard of you guys. I I saw a video of you guys. That was really interesting. The way you, you know, talk about the future of, of later stage investing. Like, you know, you want, you want to understand the why of every single person that you work with. So once you understand the why, then you can create a strategy to help them um, accomplish their why. And I think how do you, that's how, how do you get to value? How do you get to pricing that value? Because where we're at is we know our LinkedIn content, our email content, our websites, our videos moves the needle to sourcing yeah. deals, to raising that next fund and saying, invest in my healthcare private equity firm, not this healthcare private equity firm. How do you price that? I think that it's a variable price. There's intrinsic value that can't be measured. I think you go to them and you say, listen, you agree with me. 
that there's an intrinsic value here that you can't measure and I can't measure. Okay, I, I agree. There's an intrinsic value to the content and the strategy that we're doing. With that said, you know, you need my brain on this. If you really want to accomplish your goal beyond just producing content, you need a very, you know, sensitive strategic brain on this. And that brain, you know, for me to focus on this and my team to focus on this for an extended period of time and also measure this video, understand how people are responding, the sediment, you know, this requires a monthly fee instead, instead of, uh, instead of, you know, just like a, a one-time fee. Yeah. Well, maybe we can pick this up again. Yeah. <laughs> we scratched oh. the surface. Maybe episode two will be pricing strategy. for yeah, certain no, I, I love it. I think it's, uh, I think it's really interesting. Like, I, these are the problems that I love, like kind of solving and just talking about. I mean, it's intellectual, you know, it's, it stimulates me intellectually to talk about this stuff. And I just, I, I kind of miss it. There's so many different ways to approach pricing and value. Cause part of it is yeah. like, well, what do you pay your internal head of BD? What do you play a banker? What do you pay, you know, the partners and it's triangulated value and they already have anchors within yeah. their current firm. So we can dive into this on episode two. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. This is awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time for this and let's do a, uh, a second episode. I'd love to. Like, thanks for and having me.